Right, you're welcome along to World and Union Ball Saturday's weekly rugby show with me, Mick McCarthy, alongside Morris Brosnan. Morris has taken a break from, uh, you know, cracking the case of Irish international football. <laughs> to talk a little bit about rugby, you can read some of the stuff in Ball City. It's pretty good um, that he did this weekend. But ro- you did manage to fit in a little bit of uh, a bit of rugby this weekend, anyway. Yeah, I, I did, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but probably, yeah. Saturday was probably a lot more enjoyable than Sunday. But no, it was uh, it was an interesting weekend, though. We'll talk about Ireland in a minute. Uh, we're, we keep waiting for the Six Nations to take off. It hasn't happened yet, but we're you know we've got nine points from three games. It's not that bad, but that's just a league table. Really, everything else is poor. We'll get into it in a minute. We'll talk about a brilliant England Wales game. Like you know, I just I rarely have enjoyed a game of rugby so much. I just thought it was brilliant in nearly every way, to be honest. And we'll um, dissect your rolling team of the of the Six Nations a little bit later on. And we also have a really interesting guest, um, another coach making his way abroad. Yeah, it's, it's, I suppose like for Alan Kingsley, which we were talking to, who's the Dragons kicking and skills coach, but it's the story, which is one that we've kind of touched on a couple of times, of somebody who kind of is at a very high level as a player, as a club player, but doesn't kick on to become an international player. So early on in his career, starts to focus on coaching. So... Alan's story is particularly interesting because he was started in Ireland with the schools game in AIL, has stretched to Australia. He's now obviously in Wales. He's mm. going to slowly make his way up the ladder as he goes. So it'll be even, and even just to see, I think we've seen a real kind of return to kicking as being in vogue this this tournament so mm-hmm. to see his own thoughts on that will be will be interesting yeah Draglin's struggling at the moment and obviously um he went over with Bernard Jackman who's now not there anymore but it's interesting to see that Alan is kind of is is kicking on there I suppose for <laughs> part of the, the the phone was accidental there and um I'm interested in chatting to him because it's a tough job at the moment being any kind of member of the coaching staff on the Dragons and he obviously it's his role almost to give them that innovation that they need to kind of like break through a little bit at the moment, which is just something that they're struggling with. So he's got a big job in his hands and it's just going to be interesting to chat to him about it. Um, so let's talk about the fact that Ireland got a bonus point win in Rome. Job done. No problems here. Everything's fine. Oh, wait, no, sorry. That wasn't the match that we watched at all. No. Yeah, no, it, but- that was atrocious from Ireland wasn't it yeah I mean I don't know to be honest like, yeah. I think that, like uh, there was a lot wrong but I also don't think it's as as bad as has been made out elsewhere like I think the it, it's like it's such a boring point to make kind of this constant strive for nuance but I think like there was a lot good and a lot bad in the game as which has just been a feature of them throughout this whole tournament mm. right I kind of think can I just interrupt you really briefly there because I agree with you that that's true and I think that we're doing some things well but there's a lot bad and and the problem is and this isn't to go into a big fight with the anti-rugby brigade and the anti-hype brigade and I'll just pretend that doesn't exist this is a team that is rightly being talked about at least up until a month ago as a world cup contender are we going to win the world cup probably not is there a chance they could win it yes right that's the truth okay but because of that they have to be you can't have a lot good and a lot bad oh uh, yeah any bad at all is going to cost you against new zealand south africa england yeah whoever else is going to be contending yeah especially to the degree of the degree of inaccuracy is so weird for a joe schmidt team i think of like i think it was like 17 or 16 turnovers half of them were handling errors just like really simple stuff that you just wouldn't ever associate with a Joe Schmidt's team or even an Ireland team, to be honest. It's something that we've kind of had down for a long time. I actually think it's a really difficult game to, for a couple of reasons, it's a difficult game to analyse for people because those kind of mistakes, like a handling error or 
a player running a wrong line or Sexton's past the Earls at the back falling short or a mall being swallowed up the amount of times that like that's down to miscommunication. It's down to some whoever's steering the mall not doing it properly. It's down to somebody not knowing a play. And like you know, like people like me might pretend that we know who's at fault there, but we don't. Like the only people that really do is is Joe Schmidt. Like yeah. the, in those kind of scenarios, like he knows who's who's supposed to command that mall when it's about to break down. He knows who's supposed to run the line for that play. It's dropping short. We we kind of don't. We can. I mean, you can guess, you can might be able to assume, but in terms of actually analysing it, that comes down to a coach. Like that, that, that kind of level of this really inaccuracy. It's like people playing on wrong wavelengths. Yeah. You know, it, it, so the the idea of trying to break that down is is difficult, uh, which makes it the whole game is just kind of muddling. Like it's very uninspiring because of that. The even just players who like aren't be aren't terrible, but certainly aren't great. Like yeah. Murray, Sexton. This has been a feature of them throughout the tournament again. It's just it's very um. It's slightly dampening after the year we came off as well, just yeah. the, the, that kind of team. Other than Stockdale, you know, his try, so that came off an Italian mistake and knock on and just a clean run through, a good finish. And Earls, when he went through and was sandwiched by the two players, yeah. which even that wasn't the smartest play by Earls, but it was a line break. And I think Stockdale might have done it once more. I don't remember any clear line breaks. And Italy have improved, and we'll talk about them in a minute, okay? But... In the last two games Ireland have played Italy, we've beat them by a combined 90 points. Yeah. 90 points. Ireland had their way with them over the last two years. And for those to be the only two proper line breaks that I remember in the game, and I, there's, a, there's definitely a third one, another one by Stockdale hanging in there somewhere, but that's it. Like, that to me is, no matter what Italy have done to shape up their defence, is shocking that something could change so much in 12 months. And see, I, I wonder is to what extent... Ian Costos spoke to us the other day about the obsession... Like he, his word was the obsession with line speed. And he said that is something you have to be fixated on throughout a week to have it down to a level. And it's clear that that wasn't something they are fixated on for a week because we've all been talking about their attacking platform. So they're, like, you're not talking about your defence against Italy. You're just not, it's not a focus. Mm. That's why your line speed is slow. But then when you look at the actual attacking platform, if that's something you've been fixating on a week... Why is that level of an action? Like surely you are more in sync if that's what you're yeah. dwelling up towards. And the fact that that's not there is it's kind of a worry. It's also a worry the amount of times when something goes wrong. So a set piece is dropped forward, or the ball is like the a ball off the top drops in front of the scrum half. In this case, Murray, as opposed to going to hand. How it seems that everything else goes wrong after it. Their ability to play off the cuff once. Yeah. Like I'm sure that the set pieces they have down these strike plays, they seem to know them. But when something goes wrong within that. There seems to be no continuity plan. There seems to be like no ability to go back to your skill set or Yeah. Like and it's good they're good enough rugby players to manage that. They don't need everything drawn up for them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I mean I like I as I said before, I I, I think Italy were actually good. I think that mm-hmm. it can be both true that Ireland were quite poor and Italy were quite good and that Absolutely. ultimately it just comes down to like it's somewhere in between where it's a it's an okay but not a great performance. It was the best Italy performance in a long time, as you mentioned to me off air. But you're a hundred percent right. Like that, it's the best Italy we've seen against Ireland since 2013, when they, when they beat them. Now, one thing you mentioned there was line speed. The Italian defence was very good. It was very disciplined. They were basically doing the England thing of not committing to the rook and making sure they had numbers in the line. But to me, watching it, I was at our Guinness Clear event in the old storehouse watching the game with Paddy Wallace, and he'll tell, he can t- explain things to me a lot better than I can. But even to my naked eye, watching it on the on a big screen as not a non-rugby expert, the Italian line speed was, I would say, close to double the speed of Ireland's. Yeah. They were on the line, they were on, ready to go. Ireland were half a yard deeper, 
and waited for the tackle, waited for the runner every yeah. time. Not not every time. Every time's unfair. We never got into their backfield to use a American football term. Yeah. At all. And this something that that's three games in a row now. We yeah. just don't have that style of defense, and that's fine. But that is where the game is going, and that's why we our attack can't get going. And Italy, how many times did they run through with Mars? You know. This is, I don't care how good they are. That was a shoddy defensive performance in the loose. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think a lot of that is down to the amount of, like, lack of consistency. I think that's, it's a real feature of this team. They do, like they, see, they want to be in control. Like, they don't like the idea that Keith Erz is parachuted in at centre or that you suddenly lose, like, the players are dropping off out of position. Or, like, the, if you I think the biggest health test sign for me was that clearly line speed wasn't an issue for them during the week and that's why the you might see a lack of performance and then players come off the bench and instantly there's a massive rise like van der Flair was straight he was sprinting up it was clearly something that was pointing like that's all it takes like a coach pointing out to you by the way and you come on here you're yeah. shooting up you're setting a, the bar for everybody else why couldn't so they do that at half time I don't know like I, 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 it's a good question and I mean I'm sure there is an answer and maybe people who know more about coaching defences are able to answer that but I don't know I think at half time again you're talking about like if you're to make a hierarchy as a coach hierarchy of issues you're starting with the attacking platforms like you're starting with strike plays that are keep going to ball, to ground players running wrong lines the ball not going to hand like really like these are skill issues and the reason that's kind of perplexing for people to analyze is because we, they obviously have the level of skill to execute this like they've done so before yeah. and the fact that it's letting them down now is like it almost hints at and this is like this is a real armchair pundit point it almost hints at like a mentality issue that maybe like we Shane Byrne is something he's really heavy on at the minute on Virgin Media is the idea of body language yeah. and I don't honestly I don't mean I'm not a body language expert I don't know about that but just the idea that this levels of the game like they patently obviously have you'd be like it, it's not better but you would understand if the scrum was massively malfunctioning or you would understand if somebody was having a horror show from the kicking game mm. but it isn't that it's something much more fundamental it's yeah. it's I want to talk about the body language thing. It's an interest. I read that with interest. It's hard to disagree with even, as you say, we're not body language experts, right? I just want to give one comparison. In the 2007 World Cup, when Ireland were massively fancied again, yeah, and we went in and we played Namibia and Georgia and were very, very lucky to win both games and incredibly lucky to beat Georgia. We just didn't play well against Namibia. And everyone was saying we're easing into the tournament it's going to be fine next week it's going to be fine next week but you sensed something was wrong and in the second half against georgia when it looked like the game was getting away from us and this isn't even the georgia of now never mind you know yeah yeah which you'd still expect ireland to beat by 50 points and it just felt like this isn't going to click and then we went out and we were hammered to france or Argentina, or whatever yeah. way I ordered the game came in, I can't remember. I think it was France next, and then we lost to Argentina in, in the crucial the game to get into the quarterfinals. And it never got going, and body language was an issue, you, and you just felt there was something wrong. But you didn't know what it was. We didn't hear any stories. There was anything. Yeah. Years later, everybody has their books. Everybody tells their stories. Brian O'Driscoll retires and tells all the stories. It was an unhappy and an a camp that wasn't ready and wasn't wasn't focused wasn't didn't have their head fully in tune and what they should be doing they weren't at the right level they weren't at the right pitch yeah. I suppose is the best way to describe it I hope this is just a Six Nations thing for this team and there's plenty of time for them to change it because they are still good enough and the World Cup's not until October but it feels the same at the moment yeah I'm, I, Go on. I think it, it it would take it takes one cobwebs blowing like spectacular performance to write that like, yeah I, that I, was I, supposed to be this weekend maybe yeah, yeah yeah like they do have two yeah maybe um, 
like they do serve two more chances. I, yeah. th- I think the like from a coach's perspective, those stuff clicking doesn't take like that's not months. You're not talking about learning new strike players. You're not talking about like revolutionizing your lineups. You're talking about like maybe stop having such a big reliance on. I went back over it. Like Tyke Ferlang was involved in six out of fir- five of the first six lineups as a lifter. So you've got he, like, already there's a massive emphasis on him. So then for hi- use him to contribute as a strike player constantly in the loose. I wonder like, is that expecting too much or is that very predictable? Suddenly there was that famous Scotland game where they d- all they did was follow John Hayes as a lifter. Mm. Are we getting to that extent now with Tyke Ferlang? Like five of those lifts were from the back, one was from the front. So like, the, like uh, anybody who knows anything yeah. about rugby will know like that's that's stressful, that's taxing. You know, so so suddenly he's becoming more of a a set piece placed player. And that has knock-on effects in terms of your ability to use him as a ball carrier or use his hands. I just, I wonder, like, these no. are really subtle things that I wonder it, it might just take, like, another two-week gap now. They might all come together for the fans game. Yeah. Look, the whole thing is fascinating, I think. I think it's fair to say. Uh, we'll talk probably more about Italy when we get to the team of the tournament because it's only fair to talk about them a little bit. But before we leave Ireland and we get to Alan, is there any... I'm being very negative. I know I am. They still got a bonus point yeah, win away exactly, from home. Yeah. Like, is there anything to be said for the fact that they did come from behind and go out and just get the job done and get the hell out of Dodge? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't give them a huge amount of credit for that either. Like, I, I don't, I, like, as, which is, again, is why it's such a, like, in many ways, it's a boring game to analyze. Like, you don't really want to, there's not enough there to, you know, absolutely slate them. There's also not enough to give them a huge amount of credit. Like, it was a really middling performance. It was a mm. bonus point win away in Rome. Like, as a result, that's good. As a performance, it certainly wasn't. And you just kind of, like, I I wonder is this going to be one of those games just park and move on like it's a game that we probably won't even remember next year yeah last question knowing the players involved I don't believe this to be the truth Paddy Wallace dismissed it yesterday when somebody asked it they're too professional for it but I think it has to be brought up that we found out after November when everybody was on top of the world that the coach was leaving he's basically a lame duck coach now even though he's got a tournament and a half to go yeah. the World Cup and the rest of this any impact I mean, like, I mean psychologically like yeah I, I, do you think so I, like, I don't actually know <laughs> like, like, if, if that is the case I've heard that I saw that put up on Twitter as well but if that is the case I, why is that not affecting Wales who seem to be totally content to what they're doing just like total clarity in their messaging Gatland is also leaving he's been there longer than Schmidt has like, yeah. the, and if anything the continuity after that is a lot worse maybe they're happy to get rid of him but they don't look that way <laughs> do they <laughs> We'll talk about Wales in a few minutes. But speaking of Wales, um, we've got the Dragons uh, kicking and skills coach, Alan Kingsley, on the line uh, with us at the moment. Alan, how are you getting on? Good, thanks. Great to be with you. Thanks a million for joining us. Um, It's a funny time, I suppose, over there during the Six Nations, kind of players everywhere. The Pro 14 14 kind of kicks on in relative obscurity, I suppose. Um, Yeah. what what's what what do you what's it like kind of like trying to kind of keep going with the day job when the whole world especially in your part of the world all the eyes of the world were on um were on cardiff for sure there's a big uh, media focus and uh, it's, it's all gone to the international game now instead of the pro 14 but uh, i suppose we have to stay digging in and keep going it's a standard um block for us um, it's a bit it's, it's a big block um very important in terms of uh, trying to pick up a few points during it when other teams are down some international players so it's very much standard for us, um, standard weeks, um, although we are down a few players, but it's still very much business as usual for the Pro 14. Yeah, it's it's been a it's been a tough kind of um uh season um for you guys and like um obviously 
uh, Bernard moving on um, before Christmas. Um, it's, you know, has, I suppose, when you're in a, a, a competition like the Pro 14 and there's kind of, there's always sort of, um, there's always the criticism and the, the, the worry among the Welsh regions about everything that's going wrong. It's like, how much do you get to kind of, um, kind of take stock of the wider picture or is everything for you just a kind of a day-to-day let's uh it's it's coaching very much being a coach for the players that are available to you yeah for sure that's that's my biggest role is trying to make the individuals better and all that stuff is going on but it's well above my station so i'm just trying to look after my own little area um and go about the day-to-day running the the, the skills department and, and what happens above my head will happen and i won't have any influence on that but for me and, and the rest of the coaches at the moment, the focus is on Ulster for next week. Uh, we have them on Sunday and, and we're not really, uh, we can't really focus on anything else bar that this Ulster fixture. And I'm curious, the, the Six Nations has kind of been a, an interesting trend with regards to kicking. I think there was an obsession with whether or not teams are playing 2-4-2 two, two or one three three one, And it's kind of, you look at England, for example, in the kicking game they're playing. Like, what do you make of this kind of resurgence of especially attacking kicking in the game? Yes, it's, it's become massive and I suppose that's part of the reason why I got the job was to look at the kicking area over here. There wasn't um, a kicking coach in the club before I came there and, and the attacking the, the attack kicking game is massive. Um, we saw England kind of put to really good use against Ireland and <clears throat> a lot of the teams in the Pro 14 are using the attacking shorter kicks as a real weapon this year and it's trying to find the weakness in the defence or to manipulate the defence in certain areas of the field where we can get that option to put the attacking kicks in. So it's uh, something that we're looking at at the Dragons really heavily and um, we're getting some reward out of it, but uh, it, there's still a lot of improvement to go. Is that is that a reaction to the defensive lines that we've seen? We had Ian Costello on the show recently who spoke about this new obsession with line speed and about packing the line with as many players as possible. So there, presumably there's more space in a, in the backfield because of that. Like, Is that something that you're training out half or scrum has to maybe try and spot and these kind of low grubbers in behind their, their tactic now? Yeah, for sure. Well, well most teams would um, have the backfield fairly well covered. So a lot of the kicks um, are coming from the edge player. So 13s, fullbacks, wingers rather than the nines okay, and the yeah. tens. The nines and tens kind of for us is more contestable style. Maybe your box kicks or your, your cross field kicks that are contestable or kicks cross field to score. But um, a lot of the kicking opportunities now are coming from, from, from the back three players and, and maybe your, your outside centre. So um, it's really important for us to be able to get the ball to them channels and to manipulate plays. Um, so it gives us that opportunity in the wider channels. But yeah, the big focus on us is um, is trying to get the balance right between obviously attacking and keeping the ball and when the right time is to kick the ball as well. So yeah, obviously nines and tens do spend a lot of the time and it's their bread and butter to kick the ball. But we're we're concentrating on maybe the wider channels getting some some kicking opportunities in as well. Yeah, on that point actually, the... The box kick, I think, is something that's often maligned by rugby fans. They might not necessarily understand the value of it. Like, in, From your own perspective, can you maybe give us some insight into why that's such a well-used tactic by a team like Ireland, for example? Yeah, I suppose no team wants to really overplay in certain areas of the field. So the box kick kind of gives you a 50-50 chance, maybe, or 60-40 chance of getting the ball back. And um, I suppose teams will play for three or four phases in in their own half if they're not getting any momentum or they're not they're, they're not breaking down the defence they will get the ball maybe to an edge and start kicking it um, they obviously playing in the right areas of the field is massive in the modern game and the box kick while you're also getting to the right area of the field you have a chance to get the ball back as well so it's kind of um, it's a tool that you'd use maybe when, when you're not getting much joy after two or three phases in certain areas of the field so very important tool really The idea of 
specifying in kicking as a as a coach is an interesting one, I think, especially given that as a player you played as an out half. Was that something that you were kind of conscious of that this was an area you were going to make as your your specialist skill? Yeah, I suppose it all started out in Australia for me um, with the Western Force. I um, I got to, to link up with Andrew Scottney, who was kicking and skills coach with the Force, and I, I didn't even realise that there was the opportunity to box yourself off as a kicking coach, but okay. it's just materialised from there. Um, yeah, as a nine and a ten when I was playing, it's, it's a part of the game that I really enjoyed. So, um, yeah, it's, I'm really interested in, in that side of the coaching. You get to work technically with players to try and improve them technically, and then you have also the decision making process as to when to kick the ball is the right the right decision. So, um, yeah, it's a, a coaching role that I wasn't really aware of. I was a bit ignorant about it really until until I met Andrew out in Australia. And so when you look at the trends elsewhere, like we used to spend a lot of time there talking about the kicking in Six Nations. Like I'm wondering to what extent does that influence your own philosophy? Are you looking at what maybe Ireland or Wales do and is there anything from that that you can implement in your own coaching? Yeah, I, I think all coaches kind of have their own kind of DNA and, and they're always trying to nearly like magpies kind of rob from, from other coaches. And every time you're just looking at Rock and Michael's there on TV today, or you're looking at every level of rugby trying to, to pinch some ideas and see why they're doing certain things in certain areas. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's something that you would sit down and watch rugby and, and question why are they doing this or why are they kicking the ball there? But I suppose at the end of the day, it's, it is an attacking option and we want to score. So in certain areas of the field, when you're kicking the ball, you're, you're kicking the score, not just to, to, to get the ball to space. So, um, yeah, important. Uh, you touched on being in Australia there a second ago, Alan. Um, I suppose we haven't really talked about your own story as a, as a kind of a, a, an Irish player playing um, out half and then going out to Australia to play rugby, which is something that not very many people do and something we talk about a lot about Irish players kind of going abroad and it tends to be France and England and, 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 and different places, but so few go to the kind of Southern Hemisphere. How did you end up out in Australia? Um, I played um, underage rugby with a guy called Andrew Finn who was in Australia playing with that club and he just got in contact with me saying that the club that he was playing with out there uh, were looking for an out half and there was a, a package there to go out and um, to play for a few months and the, the way the seasons cross over I was able to go during the summer and come back for another AIL season so I said yeah why not I'd give it a go and uh, yeah one thing led from another then um, so yeah Andy was the main reason I ended up in Australia. That's class. And you ended up playing out for three years out there and you mentioned your kind of coaching um, you, genesis, I suppose, started there. But, you know, for me, one of the more... Like, rugby is such a, a strange game in a way because, like, every country has its own kind of distinct culture and you always find that somebody who's been somewhere else, you know, that you can meld in the two, say, the Irish and Australian, uh, you know, to start with, in your case, it really helps kind of, like, develop a kind of a unique kind of coaching philosophy, I suppose, you know, that, like, it's almost something that you'd love every everyone that kind of gets into that sort of side of the game to have that experience of. Yeah, I think you can see that as well. Um, there was an article there a few weeks ago, I think, in The Independent called The Wild Geese, and it had highlighted the Irish people all over the world. Um, that we're coaching and playing and, and there's a massive amount of us spread all over the place and um, getting that experience how you've obviously rolling down in the southern hemisphere yeah. might get Prendy and, and Paul are, are in France like so they're they're obviously um, getting loads of experience there but yeah again it comes back to every kind of coach has their own ideas on the game and the the broader your mindset is and, and the more experiences you get I presume the more you can you can add to that and pinch uh, ideas from different areas of the world and mix them all together in your own little way and hopefully have a good uh, remedy. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, just another thing, actually, you mentioned uh, we were talking off air uh, briefly about a couple of interesting uh, teammates that you had in your, your, your time in Western Australia. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, very similar to the way the AIL is running, and each uh, player over there was allocated a club. So we were lucky that Pocock was um, yeah, with our club. We had uh, Nick Cummins, Rory Sidey, Nathan Charles, Sam Wikes. So we had a good few top players playing with us. And uh, the first game we played, Pocock was seven for us, and James O'Connor was 10 for the opposition. And I was there going, oh, God, I'm out my depth here. But. Uh, <laughs> It was it was a good learning curve for me down there, and um, yeah, we were lucky enough to be involved in a really good team, and we actually ended up going to win the premiership that year. So, uh, great experience um, I had down in Australia. The, to go back to your current role now with the Dragons, the idea there, I suppose, I know Bernard Jackson spoke about this as well. It was was about not so much technical stuff as well as as, as a culture. Like from your own perspective, what would your ambition for Welsh club rugby be moving forward? I suppose um, just solely on the Dragons, I suppose we're on a journey trying to improve. Um, There's been a lot of change around the club in the last two years from the WRU taking ownership, um, a lot of players coming in, a lot of new staff, each like area of the staff, SNC, medical, rugby, there's extra numbers in all those areas. So we know we're on a journey to try and become a Champions Cup team in two, three seasons time, however long that takes. And, And kind of the culture we're trying to create is is that winning culture, but we know it's going to take time and we know there's going to be ups and downs along the way. Was it hard for you to, um, did you have to make a decision when, when Bernard left to, to, to stick around or, or to, to, to stay? It's obviously difficult with the person that you went over with, you know? Um, in terms of staying after Bernard left? Mm, or from, yeah. Uh, not really, no. I, I have a two-year contract over yeah. here. Um Unfortunately, it's part and part of professional rugby, and, and and Bernard unfortunately lost his job before Christmas. But I didn't have the the opportunities to, to get another coaching job or, or to go back to to a different job. So I, I kind of we set out our stall here as a family to to move for two seasons, and no matter what's going to happen in those two seasons, we hope to to see it out. You know, Alan, the I know we spoke about this as a player. We've spoken to other players about this as well. But the idea of coaches moving abroad especially like you now working in Wales I know you do your experience in Australia as well that surely is a symbol of what the strength of what that might mean for Irish rugby like presumably eventually those kind of coaches can go back and contribute to the provincial or to the national team as well I think it's everyone's ambition to to coach in their home country eventually it's it's, uh, and getting the experience abroad might might stand to us uh, somewhere down the line but yeah I can only speak for myself I'm looking to get as much experience in Wales and see where it takes me after Wales, maybe France, who knows, I'm open to anything at the moment, but eventually at the end of the day, there is no place like home and, and to coach in Ireland would be would be a goal for down the line, how far away that is, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, we talked um, earlier on about the, the kicking specifically so far in the Six Nations and um, England especially kind of like raising the bar in an attacking kicking sense. As a coach, other than that, when you watch these games, obviously the, it, it's almost a set piece every year between this and maybe the rugby championship where it's like, here come the, this is what the, the top coaches have laid out as the sort of the, the new style and this what, what sticks and what doesn't. Has anything kind of stuck out to you watching the game so far that maybe we might have missed um i don't think so i think um for me defenses have kind of been on top in this year's six nations yeah. um the physicality around the breakdown trying to slow the ball down and i think that's been a big effect on ireland really is 
if teams have managed to slow the ball down and Ireland's kind of game plan is about speed of ball mm. and that's my own thoughts and it's so just massive emphasis on defence and as, as attack coaches trying to outsmart defence coaches at the moment and I think defence coaches um, have the upper hand through physicality and line speed and, and closing down the attacking threats quite well. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. Well, look, hopefully, I think from a... Although I have to say I've enjoyed a lot of the defensive games so far, but I think as we head into a World Cup, maybe we think the, the attacking coaches might be able to get the upper hand in the, in the months to come. But, um, Alan, uh, the very best luck with the, the rest of the season um, with the Dragons. Uh, we hope it goes well for you. Um, and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks very much for having me, lads. Thanks so much, Alan Kingsley. Their skills and kicking coach with the Dragons in the... The struggling dragons in the Pro 14, but um, you know, just time to turn that around there. Um, interesting, uh, like getting on with the the Pro 14 business when there's such a kind of a massive event happening in the whatever about Ireland in Rome, and you know, the Irish provinces having to play the Welsh regions having to play while they're hosting England in this massive occasion in 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 Cardiff is bizarre, really. Isn't yeah, it? especially like I, the I mean, we actually brought this up. Before the Six Nations, we thought that Treviso would have a massive drop off because of the amount of numbers they contribute to, like their national team. And if anything, it's probably been been the opposite. Like there's been other, I think you're looking. This is a really interesting chance to see the reliances certain teams have on you know set players. Like Monster yeah. have torn it up since they've been their players have gone away. Treviso likewise. Whereas like Dragons are missing like Ross Moriarty is huge. It's such a massive loss for them, and that it's really kind of it's tangible. Like you can see the effect that losing these big game players has on on teams with just that not, not that degree of depth yeah zebra as well like you know gone from competitive to losing by 50 points to exactly. Ulster and you know because they can't handle losing the internationals but it's amazing that treviso now can that's yeah. a new thing and they they put a give the dragons a hiding you know so that is an interesting uh development i suppose for italian rugby and we were obviously talking a bit about italy earlier we're going to get to your team of the six nations in a minute yeah but i just wanted to stop on cardiff the occasion wales versus england i was saying to you earlier Outside of Ireland matches, I, I'm trying. I keep thinking it's like that was my favorite rugby match since last year's England and Wales game. It probably topped that actually, but I, that was a, fa- a class game last year. And then the 2015 World Cup, the group stages game where England kicked the touch uh, or didn't kick the touch. Yeah, yeah. The, the the choice at the very end, it was yeah, the, like went down infamously as bad game management. Not to, yeah. not to take your points and uh, Lancaster and Farrell were the 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 bad guys. Yeah, even though it's a captain's call, like anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even though, so um, but anyway, just there's something like there's always something about England and the Wales. I could start talking to you about Scott Gibbs scoring in Wembley in 1999 <laughs> if you want, but. Uh, especially lately it's just become this class rivalry there was an amazing atmosphere in Cardiff and then it was just a f- brilliant game of rugby yeah it was just so enjoyable defense heavy absolutely but it just shows you like you know if that game ended five all you would have been happy with it because it was just really really high quality stuff on both ends of the ball yeah and I also think there's like you're, you're further invested in the game when it's so patently obvious how much they care like yeah the, like the it was after the game but you weren't you were constantly aware of like Adam and Jones what it meant to him like the this like kind of titanic struggle like he, for him anyway especially like trying to rouse him up the Sinclair stuff I thought was really interesting like it was he Gatlin predicted it he did he did yeah. but even like the players were obviously it was obviously like it was a tactic if you watch that back when he has the high tackle and he's holding on to Adam Jones around the neck so when Jones is like pointing out the referee <laughs> and then when he falls to the ground he turns around and laughs at him he laughs at Sinclair yeah. from, from the floor like it was so 
penalty obviously he knew who had him around the neck and he also knew he was going to exploit that for a penalty like, yeah the, and it was that was the I think that was the second or third in quick succession at that stage because he'd run into the he'd run into the runner just before and yeah, got away yeah, with it and turn, then turn into but him, yeah. Alan Wynne Jones pointing at his neck as the as he uh, as the referee to, out, to, yeah. to get a penalty is one of the was just, I caught it live and then they showed the slow motion replay I just thought it was so funny and what's the referee supposed to do you actually have to give the yeah, penalty yeah, he's yeah, got yeah. him around the neck you know even if it's not dangerous but Wales were brilliant and and like Anscombe I thought was poor and was kind of kicking them out of the game really In I thought they were probably better you know 15 versus yeah. 15 and I thought their out half was kicking them out of the game Bigger came on and it wasn't just that amazing cross field try for Adams the, 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 the winning try the, the taking the bonus point away from England try but the um Bigger just performance in general was fantastic when he came on. You think he has to start. I do want to talk a little bit about Anscombe, though, because we were talking about kicking with Alan there a few minutes ago. The tactic of obviously trying to get go around the England high uh, pressing defence yeah. by these little kind of um, chip kicks through. I'm watching it and I'm going, they're so predictable. They're all too long. He's he, None of them worked out. Yeah. You know, and one of them did, and it was because of a mistake from the England fullback mm-hmm. from from Daly, who let it bounce too far and it went around them, and England still got out of it with a penalty. But that was the only one that even nearly worked out. And all of Twitter is like, you know, what's Anscombe doing? What's Anscombe doing? It just feels to me like that was a tactic that probably wasn't properly executed by the out half, rather than him making bad decisions. Yeah. See, I wonder. Like, I, I. I wonder that I think that Dan Bigger would have started this game if he hadn't. I think I, I like I don't particularly want to be this guy, but I think Gatlin doesn't get nearly enough credit for the way he manages his team. Like Bigger got injured in the off week, came off with an injury, so he had to manage Dan Bigger. I actually think Dan Bigger would have started and would have gone to this rangy kicking game that he has himself, mm. but because he couldn't start and because I think Gatlin knew they could be in the game with 20, 25 minutes left. Yeah. He started Ansco and then you have to, you tailor to his skill set. Like he isn't the, the long spiral into the corners kicker. What he is, is kind of like more of like a Finn Russell. A game, like, yeah. a game maker. Yeah. And I, but even the idea, like the, this is such really subtle, but I think it's actually really clever. Like the, the England's line speed was something that Ireland kind of couldn't work out, couldn't work out how to get around it. And instead you've got a guy like Gareth Davies, who just like it's it's not a feint, but it's a second hold before he passed the ball, and somebody shoots out of the line, and twice he got pulled them for being offside. Yeah. By just and he was straight away in the referee's ear once they did shoot up out of the line because he like, he was obviously conscious of that. I think that's what Anscombe was trying to do was trying to exploit that as well. Yeah. But that was like that is you look at England's biggest. We always talk about this with coaching. You look at their biggest weapon and you find other ways around it, and that was what Davies was doing there. It's yeah. also what I think Anscombe was was trying to do. Just if and also, I mean, I think you're right. It probably wasn't the right tactic in in the first place. But I am actually saying that you know that I'd be interested in seeing that executed better because I think that Gatland had identified that. I don't think Anscombe decided to yeah. kick the ball ten times through the middle. You know, there was obviously something there. He wasn't executing properly. Maybe he wasn't picking his moments correctly or whatever it was. It didn't work because it was clearly a very well-coached game. And that's kind of the point that you're making there was kind of my original point. is like Gatlin did everything right, almost except that. Yeah. And I'd be just very interested to see what that plan almost meant to be. Yeah. Because he had England. He knew what England's defence was 
all the way through and that was what made it so fascinating for me you're right about what davis was doing i thought he was fantastic i thought that their their pick and go pick and drive their one pat one out running was brilliant it was so much better than ireland's and you're what and they exploited the middle of the empty rook which you need to do yeah. as well and it was just such a blueprint for everything ireland didn't do in dublin against england now they had three weeks notice on england's new defensive structure and that you know to give schmidt his due you know gatland is like he you'd imagine that he would be able to manage that too but i just thought that wales had an answer for everything and they still barely won the game yeah. because this is a brilliant england team you have to admit as well so just everything about it was just fantastic and just to have that kind of highlight reel winning try as well just kind of put the cherry on top as well yeah big time yeah yeah so we'll get on to your uh your team your rolling team of the six nations how many changes there we had four, I think. Four changes. There yeah. was four changes after week one as well. So um, let's get going. I, I yeah, imagine I, so a few Welsh lads are coming into exactly, it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I, I guess like what we need to stress before I actually get into this team really quickly is this is based off three games. It's not like you can't spin around and react after this weekend. Just three games like, all yeah. together. I'm going to be the one doing that. You tell me to shut up when I do, okay? <laughs> you tell me how bad... Uh, I don't know, Josh Adams was against... Uh, oh, Josh Adams is still there. Okay, he's still there. okay, but for example, if, yeah. if, if Ken Owens wasn't, uh, was useless against um, France, you yeah. can tell me that when I'm arguing for him. So, um, Rob Kearney was in a fullback. That was just based off his comeback game, but I think Liam Williams now, has, that's two yeah. really good performances. Man of the match. Yeah. Uh, so Liam Unbelievably good under the high ball for it, someone that wasn't even really a fullback up until recently. Yeah, yeah and also his, like, the animation after he catches a ball the ability like he, I once said he got isolated got up got absolutely nailed when he got to the ground but wriggled his way and got a really long place back that yeah. he actually made it uh, like a ploy of it anyway like it became a platform even yeah. despite the fact that he was like steamrolled yeah. like, and when he's not under pressure it's a counter attack immediately it's yeah. like kicking down hogs throat yeah, exactly, at the moment yeah. with Williams back Did there that, it's I mean, a great weapon three, yeah. Yeah. Um, so speaking of that back three Josh Adams of Wales says yeah. Uh, Henry Slade was at 13 from England. He's gone for Jonathan Davies of Wales. Two totally opposite players. Like mm. I think Slade's ability so far in this tournament has been his offensive weapons in terms of his kicking game. Davies, I think, actually hasn't been as big a carrier as you might think, but his defensively, he's been absolutely incredible. His defense was amazing. I think Slade's unlucky there, I have to say. I, but yeah. I, do, I love Davies as well. So It's, it's funny. Like, I went back and watched the game, and Slade only had one pass uh, this is not down to his fault this is down to coaching but he was totally underutilized against yeah. Wales I think he had one pass and one kick in the entire game yeah um, like, so his, but given the first two performances I suppose uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Which, which I mean it's totally fair um, okay. so based off those two first, two first performances Manuel Tulagi stays even though I thought he was actually quite poor at the weekend but yeah. um, I don't think there's as somebody at a level of performance like Davies to knock him out, if you know what I mean. Who who would be up there with him at 12? See, it's a good question because there's been so much variance elsewhere. Like, I thought Massey was really good at the weekend, but he was actually kind of shifting across to 13 for Italy. Ireland had, like, Bundyaki, yeah. um, but then he suddenly he gets injured and that has... Hasn't been directions. playing well anyway, not, uh, not by his November's yeah, form. Yeah, and so, like, the competition for him itself, like, Wales have so many changes. I was Scotland, sorry, have so many changes in their, their centre yeah. partnership. I thought uh, the the best partnership that France have had so far is the Gael Ficao and Bastro combination. But Ficao has played the only other game he played was at thirteen. So yeah, <laughs> so you can okay. Get, um, no, fair enough. Johnny May stays. Johnny May. Yeah. Uh, he like, his presence in the air is something that I don't understand why they don't utilize it more. Like he's even you know these tap backs that he gets like he might he doesn't claim the ball but he just gets up and taps the ball back yeah. around him. It's like it, 
this kicked out wide to him. Uh, Owen Farrell stays. That's I don't like stuff. Johnny May, by the way, but anyway. Uh, he's a good player. Uh, <laughs> Best winger in the tournament. Uh, Owen Farrell of England also stays. Tito Tebalidi, the Italian scrum half. I thought he was man of the match at the weekend. I, can't, like, I know Ireland won the game, but nevertheless, he's... Not only his presence in terms of his passing ability, but he does defensively in terms of turnovers. An absolute nuisance. Uh, yeah, breakdown. he was fantastic. I, so I, I, I personally thought he was I thought his try against Scotland, that was entirely self-crafted. That wasn't a, a, yeah. a move. I think that was a little bit of personal innovation. He's, he's a guy who doesn't have a huge amount of like caps. And I mean... No, but like, he kept, watching the game yesterday, there was about five times I'm like, oh, Tabaldi is their new talisman. Italy always have the yeah. one talisman, and it's been Prise for a long time, but it's been in different positions over the years, and it just felt like, I don't remember a scrum half since Troncon making as big an impact for them as that, and it just seemed like that. You know, I to be honest, I thought Garrett Davis... Did well enough on uh, in that one game alone, but and against a much, well, I suppose not a, that much of a higher <laughs> standard that he was playing against. Yeah. But I wouldn't necessarily argue with that decision. Actually, I, I, I'm just on that for a second. It's really funny that you said that. With it's something I was thinking about during the week. Like the there was that Shane Horgan comment that went kind of viral on Twitter during the week about the he's like he, this is one of the worst Italian teams that we've seen in a while. Mm. Like they don't. In a way, I can understand where he's coming from because they don't have like Parise wasn't playing, Negrini wasn't playing. They don't have like a. A Massey, a Castro Giovanni, like a Bergamasco, they don't have those yeah. players. But as like when you're talking about Italy, in my own opinion, you have to take it in context of like we spoke about the rising club game. Conor Shea is visiting those and directly training them. They're under twenties had the highest average finish in the World Championships last year. They're under eighteens bet France. They're under seventeens bet England. First time ever. The in terms of as a team, like you're not you're not talking about individuals as a team. True. All the stuff that we would associate with Italian rugby has been slowly eroded. Like their conditioning, after an hour they die. That was their that was the famous thing. I can remember that as a kid. Yeah. That's no longer there. Like the, we've seen Treviso had late comebacks as their own players. The same thing is true of Italy. In terms of actual structures, you know, if you talk about like what I'm talking about is set pieces, your lineup or your scrum. They've had the best lineup in the tournaments, the best lineup in the tournaments. A guy like Geraldini, who is like their hooker, is also a massive contribution, like 24 tackles in the loose. Like, I, I think there's hu- huge signs. And Ireland's lack of line breaks, like I mentioned earlier, which I'm criticizing Ireland for. Yeah. You have to give Italy credit for that as well. They're organized at the breakdown, they're not giving away the silly penalties that exactly. we. They give away a high number at one stage in the first 10 minutes, I think they gave away five, but it wasn't for like. In it just silly ill discipline, it's, it's you know. Pe- it's penalties like with the view of doing something. Try- they're trying to slow down. The Ireland want to control yeah. the ball. They want it on their own terms. So they're lying all sides of a rook, which is clearly disciplinary is wrong. Like they, so they argue with penalties, but it's with the view of inhibiting Ireland. Like they, they've got. I th- I think the example of good coaching in action is a team at the very end, not really conscious of what's happening, and Conor O'Shea standing on the sideline and saying, "You've kicked the points because we need the bonus kick." Mm-hmm. Now, so that's good coaching that, to to take control there. What the problem is that is players at their disposal. So like you try and maximize what you have at your disposal. So if that player is of a slightly lesser standard, like Ian McKinley, who's a fine kicker, but he just pulled it right. He just didn't have the ability to execute it. But yeah. the the idea is all there. Like the I, I think it's kinda harsh to uh, Italy, I actually often wonder, I I people judge them as a fixed marker. Like you're saying, well, you know, they didn't beat Ireland this time, they didn't beat Ireland last time. But every other team is improving too. You know, you can't... It, yeah, you're we've not, said that. We've said that. And look, it's two games in a row that they've run close. So just quickly, run, I'll run sure. through your backs again. It's Tabaldi and Farrell with uh, Tuolagi and Jonathan Davis coming in yeah. with um, Adams, Williams and Johnny May as the back, back three. Yeah. yeah, so your forwards. So this is another really controversial one. Um, 
Sakina Healy comes out and Dave Kilcoyne comes in. The, my argument for this is I've gone through it and any player you would consider putting in is off one performance. There's nobody... Like, McAvinopola was in, but he then got injured and is out for the rest of the tournament. You've got then Keane Healy comes in after one great game, but then he doesn't play against Italy. Ben Moon comes in for England. That's one game. You're judging... All these are being judged off one game. Adam Dell... Like, Adam Dell was good at the weekend, actually, top, but he was terrible against Ireland. Like, he was at fault for... I think his inability to see that Conor Murray was standing and fixing him in the lineup. He was also at fault for the try when he nailed Sexton and... Um, they took the gap there, started to took the gap. So it's it's one performance that you would have to make for any decision, which yeah. is why I thought David Coyne was one of Ireland's best players. He was, yeah. So which very, is why very good. I put him in. Two, Geraldini stays, I mean, the Italian hooker. I just think he's been incredible this tournament. So I, think, I, I, I can totally appreciate why people make a case for Kellogg's. Yeah. yeah. And even, to be honest, after, I thought Jamie George had two really good games as well. He did, yeah. But uh, I just think that in terms of the importance for somebody like Geraldini, like he's, you spoke about these um, like icons. He is in that kind of bracket now for yeah. for Italy and his contribution in both. Like a lot of those players who are like someone like Stuart McNally is great in the set piece and might maybe slightly lesser in the loose or like Ken yeah. Owens is a different example now. It's not fair because he's actually great in both. No, but I just think yeah. in terms But he's of been a leader in Italy's man. His, the line out's nigh on perfect. I think yeah. it possibly even has been on his throw and um, they've lost two. Have they? He's only lost one. He's been responsible for the, the one that Peter Mahoney intercepted. That was his first mistake leading to a line out. In the whole tournament. Yeah. And his tackle count has been through the roof. Yeah. So you add all those things together and you can't really argue with it. Tighthead? Kyle Sinclair, I know that's, again, that's a question. I thought he was having a stormer until, the, was, melt, yeah. until the meltdown. So until I don't he think lost he, you can take him out of it. Um, I don't think, think I mean, this. Th- these are pretty self-explanatory. Adam Wynne jones obviously doesn't come out of it. Courtney Laws obviously doesn't come out of it, even though he's out for the rest of the tournament. So yeah. presumably he will eventually come out of it. Mark Wilson does come out because we finally have another Irish player back in. Peter Mahoney, I think, uh, well, I would actually think that game was probably questionable. I think uh, not only his... I'm not about leadership, like these moments where, like a Peter Mahoney steal. I know you're a big fan of that. The I am. I, there was two of them. And, then, and what what it does for the like in terms of killing momentum, but also what it does for for Ireland as a team, like the fact that we've wrestled it back and they use that yeah. as a platform. And his line out so good as well. Yeah, yeah, as a jumper. Um, and then finally, again, no change. Justin Tipperick at open side for Wales and Josh Navidi at eight for Wales. Two players who don't come out, so there's not much change there. Curry should be in there at seven. Do you think so? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I so. Think, I, I mean, I, I I'd have to analyze his yeah. first two games, or like you know, or his his France game anyway. You know, um, more. But I just thought he was he was a good bit better than Tipperick at the weekend. See, see yeah, I mean, I I, I think actually I thought Curry bar the and when you play against each other and you outshine a guy, and yeah. especially such a such a specialist position like seven, I think you kind of you take it for granted that you've passed that guy out yeah. then, you know? Like, uh, the, the case for, I think, Curry, absolutely. But, so, the, the, just to look over his games, like the Ireland game, the, it was really super penalty to give away and he was deservedly sent to the bin. I think that was probably a tactic that they're going after Earl, so I don't know if you can necessarily blame him for that too much. The I also, I also think on the other side of that, I think Justin Tipperick was wrongly blamed for the his try, for Justin Curry's try, where he picked and went the, the, down the pillar line there. Mm. I actually think that is Ken Owen's job. Ken, like, if you're any defensive setup I've ever seen the pillar doesn't move like the, if it's it's from outside pillar that you step across and he tried to get somebody to stand in at, on on the pillar he tried to move across there which yeah so don't turn your back on the game yeah like, I mean yeah it's, it's know, fair enough too like yeah for as long as he did you know yeah. I know getting in position he just seemed like he just was unaware that's not something I'd hold against him that's a kind of a, a 
possibly a brain fart. You're saying it might not even be his fault. I just thought that Curry was outstanding, you know, oh, and, I, and I mean, he's a exciting young player. Like I, as well, yeah, I know? totally agree with you. I think like I, just Tipper was probably man, was definitely man of the match uh, against France. Was also really good. I thought I did think he had three good games, which is why he'd say. But I can, I mean, I can totally appreciate why. Okay. We'll post this up on on Balls of the sure, e yeah. later today. I'd imagine that team. Um, it's uh, yeah. Look, I mean, I've argued with you for some of them, and I think Robbie's going to kill me because we're about twenty five minutes <laughs> over time. Uh, so I'll you know I'll accept your team, Morris. You know more than I do, and you're the one putting the time into it, and I'm just coming in and going. Now put him here, put him there. <laughs> right. So that's all the time we have for you. We'll be back uh, next Tuesday when we're looking ahead to the France game and talking to another interesting. Um, person from around the world of rugby um until then um take care and here's hoping that the next time we're talking to you we're just slightly more positive about uh where irish international rugby is going take it easy